we're uh, we're losing the kids in droves. I mean, it's not a slow trickle anymore; it's a flood. And uh, until we get to the place where we're, I, I'll tell you what it is, kids are looking for. Can I can I talk to you for a moment as a youth pastor? Kids are looking for real Christianity. That's what they're looking for. I'll tell you what's happened. We've got a generation that is sick of playing church. They need something real. And I'm not saying that we haven't always needed real Christianity, but, uh, you know, kids are facing things you didn't have to face growing up. Isn't that right? I mean, nowadays, the whole pornographic video store is right at the tip of their fingers, right at the tip of the keyboard. I mean, today, drugs and alcohol, something that, that most of you, when you were young, uh, you couldn't even get your hands on until a certain age. And now they're saying that in middle school, the majority of children have tasted of alcohol. That's the world we live in today. We've got to reach our kids. And I'll tell you what's going to do. It ain't going to be dead religion. It ain't going to be formal Christianity. It's not going to be a form and function and show and, and, a, and a form of godliness, but denying the power. It's going to be real old-time Holy Ghost conviction. It's going to be real Bible Christianity. That's what it's going to take to reach them. That's what they're thirsty for. That's what they're hungry for. It's always worked, and it still works today. I think we need to open our eyes to the need of our children around us and not just assume because we've got them in church that they're going to turn out right. Do you hear me? I mean, let's just do a poll, okay? How many of y'all know some some child that was raised in church still went the way of the world? Anybody know somebody like that? So obviously it's not just that they be in church. It's not just that they have parents that are godly. How many of you know uh, godly parents that their kids have gone the way of the world? Sure. I'll tell you what the difference is. Those that really stick with it, those that really, those that have been born again, and those that really live for Jesus Christ are those that have got a good dose of old time Christianity and they know the Holy Ghost is real. They know that prayer is real. They know their need of Him. They know that God is present and real in their lives. That's the ones that stick. The ones that really know what true worship is. Those are the ones that stick. It's not enough just to have them in the church house. not just enough just, just for you to love the Lord, just for you to try to provide a good environment. Now, if you don't do those things, you might as well bank on the fact they're going to go the way of the world. But it's not just enough to have those things. You've got to have something a little deeper. You've got to show them what real Bible Christianity is. And I, we're losing our children because we've lost our parents. That's what's happened. We've given ourselves over to formality, and old B.R. Lakin used to say that that devil respectability has stolen our spirituality, and I think that's what's happened today. And it doesn't bother us that there's dry eyes. It doesn't bother us that there's no broken hearts. It doesn't bother us that we're prayerless. Uh, all we care about is that we've got our T's crossed and our I's dotted, and that's all that matters. And we're going to see it in our children. Uh, you mark my word, we're going to see it in our children. It's already happening. It's already happening. We better get serious about this thing. I mean, the, 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 very, the very souls of our children and grandchildren are on the line. We better get serious about it. That's how important it is. Somebody say amen right there. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I, I know if I ask for one, I get one. Amen. All right. Acts chapter number one with me this evening. Acts chapter number one. Good to be in the pulpit tonight. I appreciate the message and messenger this morning. But I'd be lying if I didn't say that I missed my pulpit. I, I, I say that it's God's pulpit. Uh, but I always miss the opportunity to preach, but it's good. Y'all have to hear me enough anyway, amen? And I got an amen right there. Did you hear that? Linda amen me. I heard it. But uh, 
But I'm, boy, everybody picks on Linda. Everybody picks on Linda. Acts chapter number 1, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which He was taken up, after that He through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom He had chosen, uh, to whom also He showed Himself alive after His passion, by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them. I want you to take note of that. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, But ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye here gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen Him go into heaven. Then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey. And when they were come in, I want you to make a special note of verses 13 and 14. And when they were come in, they went up, into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon Zelotus, and Judas the brother of James. Now this is not Judas Iscariot, of course, but a different Judas. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. I want to read that verse again for emphasis. These all continued, that that word's important, continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Turn with me to chapter 2. We're going to skip over a few verses here uh, for the sake of the thought tonight. But in chapter number 2, I want to read just four verses, and I want you to make extra special notice of them. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in and one place. Now you say, what were they doing there? The same thing they were doing before. They continued. That's what the Bible says, doesn't it? They continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. And so when you come to chapter 2, what are they doing? They're continuing still. The Bible says uh, they were with one all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues. That doesn't say 
a tongue that's not known in this world. That's not what it says, is it? I mean, I'm reading out of a King James Bible. I don't know what you've got, but but it does not say. And you say, well, the Bible says an unknown tongue in some places. Yeah, and there's a lot of unknown tongues to me. In fact, there, there's only uh, only every language in the world except for two is unknown to me. And that's English and hillbilly. Those are the only two languages that this preacher knows. So it's an unknown tongue to me, but that doesn't mean it's unknown to everybody. In fact, the Greek word for tongue always implies a known language, an intelligible language. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? It wasn't gibberish. It wasn't gibberish like the modern day apostate corrupt tongues movement that we see in the church today. It wasn't the same thing. In fact, you'll find if you used to read on, we're not going to take the time to do it, and I'm not preaching on tongues tonight. But if you were to go on a little further, you'd find that there are 16 separate nations that are listed, and it gives the languages that were spoken on the day of Pentecost, and gibberish wasn't any of them, amen? But it says uh, that there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Would you pray with me this evening? Heavenly Father, I'm so humbled to be in your pulpit, and I thank you for the opportunity. Lord, I appreciate each and every one of these precious people that's gathered here tonight. Lord, I I pray that they've come with expectant hearts and, Father, submissive hearts. And I pray that you would affect that which is most needful in our hearts and lives. Lord, I I readily recognize my insufficiency this evening. I, I cannot complete or accomplish the task at hand. But, oh God, I know that you can be my sufficiency and you are my sufficiency. And so, Lord, I I pray for an unction tonight, Lord, as you told us we could have. The power of the Holy Spirit, Lord. I I pray that just as the old preacher had said of him, that his uh, words were as fire in the hearts of his hearers as chaff, I pray that you would do in lives what is most needful. Get to the heart of the matter with us, God, and use your word to do it. Father, we'll be sure to thank you. If there's one amongst us that's lost and undone, God, I I pray that you'd show them their lost state and their need of Christ on Calvary. And I pray that you'd show them their need of the risen Savior and their need of Christ's forgiveness and Christ's salvation. Lord, we love you tonight. We ask all of these things in Christ's precious and holy name. Amen. I'm beginning a series this evening on prayer meetings in the Bible. You know, at least in the time that I've been here, June 7th will be the first prayer meeting that we've had in the sense of an all-night prayer meeting. You know, we call Wednesday night's prayer meeting and we do pray. And we do pray around here, coordinated and corporately. I mean, we gather together and we share burdens and we pray. But a meeting dedicated solely to prayer, it'll be the first. And I got to thinking to myself, you know, prayer meetings are a rare thing in the world today. We have time for everything in the world. We have time for coffee and cake, and we have time for sports events, and we have time for Zumba, amen, somebody, God help us. We have time for Zumba in the church house, and we got time for Pilates in the church house, and, and we've got time for all of these different things. We've got time for plays and dramas and interpretive dance in the church house. But one thing we don't seem to have time for today is for the prayer meeting. But you'll find as you study the Word of God that the prayer meeting is a scriptural meeting. In fact, all through the book of Acts, you'll find times not just when people pray, but when they met to pray. And you'll not just find times when they met to pray, but you'll find times when they met to pray for a specific thing. And you'll find sometimes there's what we call impromptu prayer meeting. Hope Paul and Silas wound up in a Philippian jail. 
And there at midnight, they sang the praises of God and prayed to the God in heaven. That was an impromptu prayer meeting, but it was a prayer meeting nonetheless. Then there's times when there's planned prayer meetings in the Word of God. And those are just as valid, just as important, and you'll find time and time again. In fact, in Acts chapter number 12, you'll find a planned prayer meeting. And we'll probably preach on it sometime the next month. But old Peter was locked in prison. And Herod uh, had his eye on his head. He wanted his head taken off. And what did the church do? In fact, I, I like how, how the Bible tells it. It goes through a big laundry list of all the things going wrong. And it talks about, oh, James was dead. Oh, Peter. Peter was locked up. And oh, he had all these prisoners on either side. And oh, the uh, pagan feast was coming up. And oh, Herod was getting ready to kill him. And oh, and all these different things were happening. Uh, but you know what the Bible says? But prayer was made of the church. Let me tell you something. Prayer in 180 your situation. Prayer can make a difference in your life. And prayer can make a difference in church life as well. That was a planned prayer meeting. And there's prayer meetings all through the Word of God and all through the book of Acts in particular. But as you study prayer meetings in the Word of God, you'll find that Acts chapter number 1 and chapter number 2 present to us the very first prayer meeting of the New Testament church. And now I understand tonight, let me say explicitly, we're never going to have another Pentecost. We're never going to have another Pentecost because we don't need another Pentecost. And I'm not here tonight to preach on how we can have another Pentecost like the Charismatics do. That's not what I'm interested in doing. We have the Holy Ghost. The New Testament church has been birthed. We have no need for another Pentecost. But I'm here to look at this instance and find the place that the prayer meeting fits into what took place on the day of Pentecost. We find that this had been a commanded prayer meeting. Christ had commanded them to uh, go and to wait. In fact, He said in Luke 24, 49, He said, And behold, I send the promise of My Father upon you, and that's the Holy Ghost. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. And so this was commanded for these believers to do this. But as we look at this passage, we'll find that even though it was commanded, they still had a decision to make. And let me say this isn't, by the way, I'm not just trying to prep people up for, for June 7th. I mean, I, I want to, I want to teach you about a prayer meeting. I want to encourage you to be there. But this is something we need to know and to understand for our Christian daily walk at all times. And listen, they had a choice to make when it came to prayer. They could pray or they could not. You say, oh boy, preacher, preach something deep to us. That is deep if we could really get it. In other words, when we're prayerless, it's by our own choice. You say, oh no, preacher, I have circumstances. Yeah, you and everybody else, suck it up. Boy, that's smooth, isn't it? <laughs> they kicked me out of Joel Osteen's church. Your problem is not your environment. Your problem is your lack of faith in prayer. That's why you don't pray. Your problem is not your circumstance. You say, I've got difficult circumstances. That ought to drive you to the throne room, not away from it. We find that we all make a choice in praying. But I want to look at a few things in this passage. I'm going to try to be quick tonight. Never done it before, but we'll try it tonight. Amen. Look with me at verse number 1 and just the first phrase. I believe this is important in rightly dividing the word of truth. The Bible says, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come. I want to say, and if you're marking them down, number one, that we see a providential mandate taking place. The Bible says when the day of Pentecost was come. No. The Bible says when the day of Pentecost was fully come. Uh, that phrase, fully come, that, that has implications to it. 
Let me give you another example of when a phrase similar to that is used in the book of Galatians. And I believe it's chapter 4, the Bible says, of the Son of God. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made a born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. In other words, in the process of time, in the fullness of time, in other words, when God's time had come, this took place. You'll find that the day of Pentecost was providential. It was determined in the foreknowledge of God. It was destined that it would take place. You say, I don't believe that, preacher. Well, read your Bible. You'll see two things about it that took place at Pentecost that were going to take place whether we liked it or not. And I'd say, first off, that the birth of the New Testament church took place on the day of Pentecost. Now, I I used to believe a little different about this. I'm going to be honest with you about this. I used to believe a little different about it. I used to believe that the birth of the New Testament church took place in John chapter number 20 in the upper room when God breathed on them and they received the Holy Ghost because the Bible says we're baptized by one uh, spirit into the body of Christ. And the Bible teaches that. By the way, that's not a water baptism either. We're baptized by one spirit, not by one preacher, not by one local church, but we're baptized by one spirit into the body of Christ. That's not a water baptism. That's a spiritual baptism that takes place. But then I got to thinking, there's three different actions relating to the life of the believer that's spoken of concerning the Holy Spirit. One is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit of God indwells within us. He is in us and He'll never depart from us. That takes place at the point of salvation. Then there's what we would call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's when we are baptized into the body of Christ and made a member of Him. We are part of the body of Jesus Christ. And by the way, that takes place simultaneously with salvation today as well. Then there's a third action that's spoken of, and that's the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not what the Nazarenes call a second blessing. This is not being baptized in the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues and prophesy. But the filling of the Holy Spirit is commanded in the Word of God. Be ye not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. Be ye filled with the Spirit. We're commanded to be filled with the Spirit of God. And this is something that can take place in our life and we can backslide from. You say, what is the filling of the Holy Spirit? That's when uh, we're full of Him and He's got every bit of us. That's what the filling of the Holy Spirit is. When we're dead to self and He owns every single bit of real estate in your heart, that's what the, the filling of the Holy Spirit is. And the Bible teaches us in John chapter number 20 that the, uh, that the men in the upper room were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But the Bible tells us in Acts chapter number 1 that not many days hence you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Why were they filled but not baptized? Because there wasn't a local New Testament church yet. They were not baptized into the body of Christ because the church had not been instituted yet. And so we see the birth of the New Testament church in this passage. That's providentially mandated. The church was going to happen no matter who it heralded. In fact, the Bible says about the church that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The devil himself wasn't going to stop the New Testament church from taking place. Let me say secondly, not only the birth of the New Testament church providentially took place, but let me say that the bestowal of the Holy Spirit took place as well. Or we might even be clearer and say the bestowal of the Holy Spirit outside of the upper room. Because, you see, the Holy Spirit had been bestowed upon those that had been up in the upper room. But as you read on in this passage, you'll find that those that accepted Christ on this day or those that had repented of their sins, that they were baptized, that they received the Holy Ghost. And that was all new. It had only been with those eleven. And what we find here 
is the beginning of the process through which God begins to bestow His Holy Spirit on, on each individual believer that accepts Christ. You don't have to do anything except accept Christ to have the Holy Spirit indwelling within you. You don't have to pray for it. You don't have to work for it. When you accept Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in your heart and in your life. Let me tell you why we've got a lot of people that have professions of faith but live like they're straight out of hell. Because they've got just that, a profession, and that's all. The Holy Spirit of God is not living within them to lead them and to guide them into all truth. They, they have no clue what a spiritual life is all about. You say, have you been saved? They say, yeah, I've been baptized. <laughs> you say, have you been saved? They say, yeah, I'm part of a church. You say, have you been saved? They say, yeah, some preacher prayed for me. But they've never accepted Christ as their personal Savior. And the Spirit of God doesn't live within them. That's the watermark, neighbor. That's the acid test. Does the Spirit of God live within you? That's the acid test. Everybody's got a testimony. I mean, God help us today. You can walk up and down Wall Ridge, Wall Oak, Wall Rock. Uh, you can go in the Walmart down there and you won't find a lost person in East Tennessee. I don't care where you go in East Tennessee. You just won't find a lost person. They've all got a testimony. But I think very, very, very few. In fact, the Bible teaches us that very, very, very few in this world have truly been born again and have the Spirit of God living within them. You say, why aren't they uh, really saved? Because they've never really accepted Christ. You say, are you saying it's difficult to do? No, it's not difficult to do. In fact, it's the easiest thing in the world to do. But they've never had their pride humiliated. They've never had their spirit crushed. They've never had their will broken. They've never got to the place where they knew they needed Him, and so they've never called on Him as a Savior. They've never came to that point. We see two providential things that take place. The birth of the New Testament church and the bestowal of the Holy Spirit upon those outside of the upper room. And I believe this was going to take place whether a prayer meeting had took place or not. I believe God's work was going to be accomplished no matter what. And we're talking about it this morning. You know, let me say something. Your, your unwillingness to be obedient to the Lord is not going to stop the work of God from taking place. It might stop it from taking place in this local church. It might stop it from taking place in your life. But God is going to get His work done one way or the other. He's not hindered or bound by you. And I believe that God's work on the day of Pentecost was providential. I believe God was going to accomplish this. But we'd ask, what, what place does the prayer meeting put in it? You say, would Pentecost have taken place if there had been no prayer meeting? Yeah, I believe it would have. But you say, would it have been Peter, James, and John, and the others that God used to accomplish it? No. Let me tell you something. The work of God's going to go on in this world. The question is, is it going to go on in Walridge Baptist Church? You hear me tonight? It's not a question whether God's going to save souls in this world. He'll find somebody that's willing. The question is, is He going to save souls within the walls of this church or, or through the outreaches of this church? There's some things that are providential, but this is particular. The work of God's going to go on. The question is, are we going to get in on it? Are we going to have a part in it? Is it going to take place in our life? You say, give me an example. Why is it that God... I could go on and on and on down through the instances of revival that have taken place. There was a time when if you had drove through Wales, you couldn't find a tavern. You couldn't find it. Early 1900s, if you used to drive through the countryside and, and the cities of Wales, you could not find a tavern. 
There had been a great revival that had take place. And listen, I'll tell you when it's really revival. I mean really Bible revival. is when it starts shutting down the bars. That's when it's real Bible revival. And, and, and by the way, neighbor, not because we've run the bartender out of town, but because we've won him to Christ. <laughs> or dried up his business, one of the two. That's when revival really takes place. By the same token, if you used to go just a couple hundred miles and go to England, you would have found bars on every single street corner. In fact, despite the efforts of great men of God that were doing the work of God in England, you'll find that that was one of the most decadent times in its history. Why Wales and why not England? There was a group of believers that would meet together in Wales and had literally been praying for years for a move of God to take place. And by the way, don't think, don't think, please don't misunderstand. I'm looking for God to do big things. But it may take more than one prayer meeting. You hear me? <laughs> it may take more than 15 minutes to see that child you're saved. It may take more than 15 minutes to take that, that child of yours out of the hog pen and put him back in daddy's house. It may take more than 15 minutes. And I kind of believe it will take more than that. For years they had prayed for God to do a work. That's why it happened in Wales and it didn't happen in England. Why does it happen for some churches, not for others? Prayer makes the difference. Prayer gives us access into the blessings and work that God is doing. Prayer gives us the ability to see God move in our midst. We see a prayer meeting take place. I want you to notice a couple things about it. I'm just going to be quick, amen. I want you to notice that this prayer meeting was coordinated. Look with me at verse number 1. Look at the next phrase. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, notice what it says, they were all with one accord. doesn't mean they was driving a Honda around either. Amen. They are all with one accord. You know what that means? You say, oh, that means there's unity in the church. Yeah, that, that, that's what that means. There's unity amongst them. But I believe it means something else. When it says with one accord, I believe what it's saying is not just that they... We're all right with each other and they were in harmony with each other. But I believe what's implied is that they were all praying for the same thing. Let me tell you, it's vital not just that we pray, but that our prayer be coordinated. You say, what do you mean? I mean that it makes a difference whether there's one person praying for something or two people. It makes a difference whether there's one person praying for something or 100. And God may honor one person praying for revival in Walridge Baptist Church, but He's a lot more likely to honor a 100 praying for it. I, why do you think the Bible says to bear ye one another's burdens? Why do you think it is that we have prayer lists? Why do you think it is that we gather together on Wednesday nights and we share prayer requests? Because there's power in prayer and there's power in coming together in agreement about something. They were coordinated. They were praying collectively and coordinatedly for these needs. But I want you to notice, secondly, they were praying corporately. You say, what do you mean corporately? You mean they had a CEO there with them? No. No, what we call uh, worship in a public and structured way is corporate. We'll say that's corporate worship. And we call prayer meeting, we might call that corporate prayer. You see, it's one thing to pray in your prayer closet, and that's good, you're commanded to do so. But we find it's an entirely different kind of prayer that's taking place outside of the prayer closet. Because the Bible commands us that we ought to have a time when we go into our closet and shut the door and pray and seek God's face. And yet we see these believers and they were not only with one accord, but they were in one place praying. 
You say, what's the significance of that? Because in numbers, prayers encourage one another to prayer. I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you. I've had it happen to me. But you ever had God speak to you in a service and you've gone down and you began to pray and you're pouring your heart and your soul out to God and all of a sudden you feel it. You feel somebody, you feel that hand on the shoulder. You hear that low murmur of someone's voice. And it's almost like a, like a drink of, of fresh water, a breath of fresh air to know someone has come down to pray with you about your need. They've met together with you to pray with you, that's scriptural, church. That's scriptural. Not just to pray for the same thing. You say, preacher, can I not pray from my house? Yeah, you can pray from your house. But we find that the New Testament church met together for prayer. They met together for prayer. You say, doesn't God honor prayers that we pray in our house? Yeah, He does. You say, are you telling me, preacher, that if I can't, if I can't make it to, to a Wednesday night or if I can't make it uh, on a prayer meeting night, are you telling me that God won't hear my prayers? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm merely saying this, that corporate prayer is a scriptural action of the New Testament church that God's people have always met together to pray over a need. And God has always honored it in an especial way. We find a prayer meeting taking place. But you know, it's the third thing. We see a presence being manifested. Look what it says in verse number 2. The Bible says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. I want to be deliberate in what I'm about to say, because I don't want you to misunderstand me. Again, I'm not saying we're going to have another Pentecost. I don't want you to draw that from what I'm about to say. I'm not saying we need another Pentecost because we don't need another Pentecost. The New Testament church is thoroughly established. The Holy Spirit of God indwells each and every believer that calls upon the Lord's name. I'm not saying we need another Pentecost, but something we found is that when they gathered together to pray, we find that God showed up in a real big way. The presence of God was manifest amongst them. You say, that's dispensational. Hey, God shook the prison house when Paul and Silas prayed, didn't he? Go through the New Testament. It's not just dispensational. It's not just on the day of Pentecost. When God's people gather together to pray, guess what? God shows up to honor it. He showed up. Now, I'm not looking for a sound of a mighty Russian wind. I, 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 Russian, listen to that. Did you hear that? I'm not looking for a German wind either. Amen. That's my hillbilly showing through. A mighty rushing wind. That's not what I'm looking for. I sure ain't looking for cloven tongues, amen. The only thing cloven I want to see is the hooves on the bottom of that cow whenever I'm about to kill it and eat it, amen. That's all I'm looking for. I'm not looking for cloven tongues. But let me tell you something. I am looking for God to show up in a big way in our church life and our personal life. I'm looking for God to show up in our services. I'm looking for God to show up not just within the walls, but outside the walls, in the lives of our children, in the lives of our family members, in the lives of our co-workers. I'm looking for God to show up in a mighty way. And I believe prayer is the key to that. I believe prayer is the key to it. I want you to notice two things. Number one, I want you to notice that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is perpetual. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is perpetual. Christ said this, He'll never leave you. Never leave you. Uh, the, the Spirit of God is never going... You say, well, what if I grieve Him? He won't leave you. What if I quench Him? He won't leave you. What if I disappoint Him? He won't leave you. What if I disobey Him? He won't leave you. The Spirit of God will not leave you. His presence is perpetually with you. 
the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is perpetual, but I want you to notice that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is particular. We use this terminology. There's a big difference between having God in you and having God on you. <laughs> you say, give me, give me chapter and verse for having God on you. Cloven tongues on them. Amen. <laughs> God on. You say, what does that mean? That means whenever the power of God is present in your life in exercising the glory of His person and in exercising His will. You say, give me an example. When you witness to people and there's power in your words. When you pray for people and God hears and God... that That's having God not only in you because He's always in you, but that's having God on you. And you say, what do you mean by God showing up? Isn't God always with us? Yeah, God's always with us. And in fact, He made the promise that where two or three are gathered together in my name, there will I be. Of course, I have an inkling that that's what He's saying constitutes a local church, is two or three believers gathered together uh, in His name. I believe He's saying that's what a local church is. Uh, but, but I believe God is always with us. But I don't want God just showing up. I want Him showing out. I don't just want Him in us. I want, I want Him on us. I don't just want God to be here, but I want His presence to be manifest. You say, what do you mean by the manifest presence of God? When the Holy Spirit has liberty to work in the hearts and the lives of His people, and when we see God saving sinners, convicting backslidden Christians, drawing saints closer to Himself, giving us that drink of water that He told us about, us drawing from the well of everlasting water that lives within us in John chapter number 4 that was promised to all those that accepted Christ as their Savior, drank of that uh, living water of God, a well of living water springing up within us unto everlasting life, drawing out of that well. That's what I'm talking about. We see the presence of God manifest. I want to give you one last thing and I'm going to hush. I, I want to say that we see providential mandates. I want to say that we see prayer meetings. I want to say that we see presence manifested. But I want to say that we see power mightily. Look at what it says there in verse number 4. The Bible says, And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The purpose of tongues on the day of Pentecost and biblical tongues... Always, always, you say on the day of Pentecost, no, every instance of biblical tongues was always a language that was intelligible and that was known somewhere in the world. It was never a quote-unquote mysterious language. It was never a heavenly language. But it was always a known language somewhere in the world, though it might be unknown in the congregation that is present there. And that's what Paul's talking about. Uh, Paul used this statement. He said, I speak with tongues more than ye all. You say, what does that mean? Does that mean Paul got slain in the Spirit and had holy laughter? And, 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 and No. What that means is that Paul is a brilliant man that was raised up in New Hebrew, probably New Latin, definitely New Greek, probably New Aramaic. Paul knew all these languages. And what Paul is saying as he writes concerning tongues is this. If you've got someone in your congregation... Uh, that speaks Latin, for instance, and they need to hear the gospel, then speak in Latin and give them the gospel. But if there's no one there that is in need of the gospel in any other language, then don't just stand up there and wax eloquent like a moron. Somebody say amen. That's what Paul's saying. It's that simple. It's that clear. And it's taken modern heresy to convolute and confuse 
the tongues of the New Testament. You don't ever find Spurgeon speaking in tongues. You don't ever find Moody speaking in tongues. You don't ever find any of these old men of God ever speaking in tongues or ever having a desire to speak in tongues. That's been concocted by the modern-day Pentecostal charismatic movement as a means of drawing crowds to the sensuality of the flesh. That's the only purpose that it's ever had. And even if it was scriptural, it's still unscriptural because of the way in which they do it today. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that women aren't to speak in tongues in churches. If you took the women out of the tongues movement, it'd die like that. Isn't that right? It'd die like that. You say, that, that's sexist, preacher. No, that's scriptural, preacher. That's what that is. But it don't matter because the way they speak in tongues isn't scriptural anyway. What we find is this. We find that God gave them a door of utterance to give the gospel out. And as you read later on in that passage, you, you, you read of the thousands that were saved that day. You read of the thousands that were added to the church and you, you read of those that began to, to love God and live for God and serve God. And what you find is that this, that the prayer meeting was the source of the power of God in their lives. Let me tell you something. As long as we do it in the energy of our flesh, we might as well just go home. I, I mean, uh, the cults won't tell you that. You listen to me? The cults won't tell you that because they know their religion's false. But I'll go ahead and tell you that if we're just going to play church, we might as well sell the building, divvy up the money, and stay at the house on Sundays. No point in it. If Christ is not alive, if the Holy Spirit of God does not indwell us, and if the work of God cannot be done through the power of the Holy Ghost, we might as well just give it all up and quit playing church. No point in it. I have no interest in doing what I do if Christ is not risen and if the Holy Ghost is not real. I have no interest in my family being given to the ministry if, if the work of God can't be done in the power of the Holy Ghost. It's, it's time that we drew a line in the sand and made up our minds that we're going to do this God's way and with God's power. Because that's the only way it's going to be accomplished. I want you to notice two things about this power. Number one, I want you to notice it was promised. I, I already read to you in Luke twenty four forty nine. He said, you shall be endued with power. The Bible says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God, correct? But the Bible says that the letter of the law killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. You can give the gospel all day long, but there will be no power in it unless the Holy Spirit of God is convicting the heart and giving life and energy and effort and effectualness to the words being spoken. Uh, you say, oh, does, does that mean nobody gets saved? No, even a blind pig roots out an acorn every now and then. I mean, I tell you how most churches are. You ready? And if the, if this hits Wallridge, it just hits Wallridge. I believe we ought to love the Lord enough not to play church. Most churches only have people saved by accident. Am I right? Some lost sinner stumble through the door, looking for help, looking for money, or just looking for a place to get in out of the weather. They stumble in, they sit on a on a pew, and the preacher preaches, and he falls under conviction and stumbles down to an aisle, and then everybody looks at each other like, "Well, what do we do now?" Isn't that right? Am I telling it true or not? Most churches are like that. I don't want us to be that way, do you? I want us to be the kind of place that makes sinners uncomfortable. Not because we're mean, not because we're rude, not because we don't welcome, not because we're, uh, we're sitting there uh, measuring the length of their skirt or the length of their hair. I, that's not what I mean. I want to be the kind of place where the sinner's uncomfortable until he gets saved because the power of God is manifest in the service. That's what I'm looking for. That's what I'm looking for. And I believe that's what all of us ought to be looking for. God's promise that He'd endure us with power, but the power comes through the Holy Ghost. You say, I've already got the Holy Ghost. Yeah, you've got God in you, but do you have Him on you? 
Yeah, you've got the Holy Ghost within you, and that's true, and that's right, and that's correct. You have Him, but how much of you does He have? See, that's where the power really comes from. We've allowed people to mystify the feeling of the Holy Ghost today. And, oh, it's something that we've got to work for. And, oh, it's something we've got to sacrifice for. And there may be some things in your life you've got to get rid of before God can have uh, the entirety of you. But let me put very simply what the filling of the Holy Ghost is. When you yield in such a way that He has your entirety. That's what the filling of the Holy Ghost is. You say, do I have to pray for it? Yeah, prayer is probably going to be the only way you're going to get that nasty flesh out of the way. That's probably the only way. The Bible teaches us that it was promised. But notice, and I'm done. I want to say that this power was purposed. God gave it for a reason. For a reason. The chief work of the New Testament church is the winning of the lost soul to Christ and the discipling of the same to cause them to be a believer in the likeness of Jesus Christ and reproduce themselves in the lives of others. That's the work. That's the chief work. It's not the chief purpose of the New Testament church. The chief purpose of the New Testament church is to be to the glory of Jesus Christ. You say, why is that important? Because if we get the ox before the horse on that, we'll use any ungodly means necessary to get sinners through the door. If we keep the glory of God as the main and chief responsibility of the local New Testament church, as the book of Ephesians clearly teaches us that it is, that that's our purpose in this world that will keep us from compromising. And I believe that if it, if it takes compromising to win people to Jesus Christ, we just ought not. I'm sorry if that makes you uncomfortable. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we're to contend for the faith. The Bible teaches that we're to come out from among them and to be separate. The Bible teaches, in fact, what are we going to win them to if we have to compromise to do it? What, win them from, win them from their lost state to bring them into a worldly church and leave them discouraged? No, the truth of the matter is we don't have to compromise to reach sinners. We just have to be compassionate to reach sinners. The problem is not that, that, that there's nowhere to bring them to. The problem is that God never commanded us to bring them here. God commanded us to go and we're not going. That's the problem. If we go, if we go, it wouldn't matter how they come to church because we wouldn't win them at church anyway. Hear me? If we go, it, it, it wouldn't matter whether they liked our music or not. Because we wouldn't be winning them in the church house anyway. You say, are you against people getting saved in church? No, I'm not against that. I love it when people get saved in church. I'm for it. But the New Testament pattern is for the, the, the saved person to go and to reach the sinner. Not to go and get them and bring them into church. God bless you if you get them here. That's wonderful. But I'll tell you why we don't see more people saved. Because it's a lot harder to get someone here on a Sunday than it is to get the gospel in their ears in the everyday of things. We're doing it backwards. We're sitting there and begging and pleading with people to get them to church, and we ought to do that. But we're begging and pleading with them because we want to see them saved. When we have the message that can save them, we can give them the gospel, we can share the truth with them, and then it won't matter how they come through these doors dressed because they'll be saved before they ever get through them doors. Isn't that true? It's awful quiet. Is everybody okay? Isn't that true? won't matter the length of their hair. won't matter the length of their skirt. It won't matter whether they like our music. won't matter whether they like your preacher. That won't matter a bit if we're winning them outside the doors. You say, well, what if we win them and they still don't like? You know, I found this, that the Holy Spirit of God, uh, that God is not the author of confusion. The Holy Spirit of God ain't going to write any confusing things either. And I found that it, ta- it may take people a little while to grow in grace and truth. But I found this. I, I-, I found that carnal church members are a lot more difficult to deal with than new converts. 
New converts typically are so, so happy to be saved, so happy to be washed in the blood, that they're just waiting for a little discipleship and instruction. We're trying to foster a sinner-friendly environment in the New Testament church when the New Testament church is not the designated place for the sinner, but rather for the saint. Now, they ought to be welcome. We ought to encourage them to come. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but I'm saying the, the New Testament plan and the New Testament process is that we go out and reach them with the gospel. We find that this power that was given was purpose. It wasn't given to build a big church. In fact, we'll find you say, oh, but, but the church at Jerusalem was so big. Oh, preacher, we shouldn't have a problem with big churches because the church at Jerusalem was so big and it was so big and they had all these. Oh, and they had deacons. They had all this. Yeah, and it wasn't long before God scattered it. Isn't that right? What do you think was taking place in Acts chapter uh, number 8? What do you think was taking place? God scattered them. Why? Because you say, preacher, are you against big church? No, I'm not against them if they're, if they're gospel and if they're scriptural. But we find the pattern of the New Testament church is not to build up, but to build out and to take the gospel and to go anywhere and everywhere trying to reach. And I mean geographically anywhere and everywhere. I don't mean ecumenically anywhere and everywhere. But to go geographically anywhere and everywhere and try to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God scattered it. God scattered it. The truth of the matter is the purpose wasn't to build a big church. The purpose wasn't to start a denomination. God help us, we don't need denominations, do we? <laughs> We don't need denominations. We got enough contention in Independent Baptist Church without throwing a denomination in the mix. The reason that the, the power was given was for the giving of the gospel and the reaching of souls for Jesus Christ. Say, so why? Because that's the chief work of the New Testament church. That's the chief work. Our purpose is to glorify God, but our work is the giving of the gospel. The truth of the matter is, I believe Pentecost would have took place without a prayer meeting. But I don't believe that Peter and James and John would have been on it. God's going to do great things in this world. God's going to do great things in the families of people in this world. What's it going to take for Him to do great things in your family? God's going to do great things in, in scriptural, biblical churches in this world. What's it going to take for God to do great things in this church? God's going to do great things in the, in the lives of, of children in this world. What's it going to take for Him to do great things in the life of your children and grandchildren and, and, and your nieces and nephews? What's it going to take? It's going to take coordinated corporate prayer of a deliberate manner. It's going to take us being willing to lay ourselves on an altar and to meet with the Lord and say, Lord, I'm here to talk to you about this. God, I'm not leaving until you give me liberty to do so. God, I'm here to pray over this and I've got to get a hold of heaven over this matter.